You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Good morning. Good to see everybody. Gabe, I like your shirt. Looks good. Um, hey, well, we're just getting into it. Matthew series. We're, we're what, four weeks in, five weeks in, something like that. Um, I hope, again, as we just don't want to lose the focus that this isn't just about us talking about Matthew. This is us as a community, like marinating in the gospel of Matthew. So please be reading, be praying, be thinking through reading extra uh, curricular uh, resources on Matthew. It's just such a rich, rich gospel book in our scriptures. Um, but we've been walking through the kind of the birth and the early life of Jesus and what that looked like and all the, the prophecies, the puzzle pieces that were starting to get filled in just by Jesus's birth and all the things that, that happened around his birth. Um, and the jump from Matthew chapter two to chapter three is a long time in years. So already Jesus has actually grown now. He's grown now where he's going to come onto the scene officially next week, and we'll see that happen. But about uh, some time has passed and Jesus has grown, um, but something really important happens before Jesus begins his kind of official earthly ministry. And that's it with John the Baptist. And that's what we're going to focus on today. But in order to really get the magnitude of John the Baptist and, and his appearance and what he is for Jesus on the scene, we have to do a bit of a, a, a couple hundred years earlier history recap. So there is going to be more coffee. So if you need to get up and get that or just start pacing in the back, that's totally fine. Um, but I want to read you uh, out of, I start with Isaiah chapter 40 to begin the context for why John the Baptist was so important. So this is Isaiah chapter 40, 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her war warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for, for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, bless you, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. These words from Isaiah were spoken to Israelites who were either already in or staring down captivity in Babylon. There were some of the few comforting words to a people who had turned from God to seek their own ways of living, and it has turned out naturally disastrous. In the wilderness, in the desert, where there's nothing and all seems lost, when there's been no word from God, no sign of life, little to no hope. A voice will cry out in the wilderness, and this will begin this highway for God and everything to be made new. Now, fast forward a few hundred years later, still in the Old Testament, the people of God have come back from exile. They rebuild the temple and Jerusalem, reestablish the law of God only to fall away over again. They break the laws, they break their ties, break their Sabbath oaths, and even the priests of the temple have become corrupt once again. And the prophet at that time, Malachi, 
he condemned this activity. And Malachi speaks of judgment upon those who have turned from God, but also hints at a redemption found in those who repent. Malachi speaks of this day as the day of the Lord. This is Malachi chapter 4, 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Like so far, pretty heavy, right? Utter destruction. This day is coming for everyone. But there will be a warning, a time of repentance before that day. Malachi continues, verse 5 and 6. But behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a degree of utter destruction. After this, there's 400 years, a little over 400 years of nothing. No word from any prophets, no signs, no warnings, nothing that the day of the Lord has come. And this is known as the intertestamental period. Have you guys heard that before? Otherwise known as the silent years. Okay, after this prophecy, about 400 years of just waiting. When's it going to come? So I want to nerd out for a second, because even though there was nothing and there were silent years, this is, there's no time that is wasted in God's plan. In that 400 years, okay, here's a couple things that happened that were really important to, to set us up for the days of Jesus. In that 400 years, Alexander the Great conquered the known world. So if you remember from your history classes, he made everything Greek or Hellenized, they call it, from language to culture. There was a spreading out of the Jewish people, so there was no longer one central area for the Jewish people to be, but this was called as the diaspora, where the Jewish people were spread out uh, throughout the region. Many famous liter biblical literature was compiled in this time, including the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint. Okay, if you can remember these words, Septuagint, which is incredible. I want to talk about that for a second because this is so key to understand in Jesus' time. The Septuagint is the entire Old Testament Torah, so Genesis through Deuteronomy, in Greek, which might not seem like, oh, that's cool. Like, why do we care about that? But think about it. Originally, it was in Hebrew, and all the speakers and readers of Hebrew after 400 years might not be around, slash everything is being turned into Greek. So how are any new subsequent generations going to know the law of God? So legend has it, you can go look this up, that over it, during this time, 72 scholars wrote the entire Torah from Hebrew into Greek in 72 days, which go read your Bible. It'll take you more than 72 days to read the Old Testament, right? It's huge. Now, God's law is accessible to any Greek hearer and speaker, which is mind-blowing that they could do that, right? So also in this time, then the Romans take over and they add their spin to everything, creating this kind of Greco-Roman culture with all their gods and their beliefs and their philosophies. And this is what we get when we get come to Jesus's day. So there's still been no word from God, no prophet, and no day of the Lord. The temple is there. The religious leaders are making a show of religion, but the people of God are still waiting for something to happen. And then we get to Matthew chapter 3. Something is happening now. 
parallel to what we've been looking at to Jesus' birth story is in Luke's gospel, we're told of another birth narrative, John, or Jesus' cousin, John. Now, John's dad was Zechariah, the high priest of temple duty at the time, and his mother, Elizabeth, had been barren. But much like Mary was visited by an angel and told they were going to have a baby boy. And Zechariah, of course, is terrified by this angel. Here's that scene, Luke 1, 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink, drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And listen, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Does that sound familiar? Instantly. The first sign of something. Wait a second. Your son will be the long-awaited signpost for Malachi to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So remember, Matthew is writing this years and years after Jesus, reminding his readers and hearers that something was indeed happening at that time. John is the herald for Jesus to come onto the scene now. So all of that encompasses why we're caught up to Jesus. The Lord is born the Lord has grown up. By chapter 3, we've skipped from, being, from Jesus being a two-year-old to a grown-up now. The Lord is here. But the focus today is the other boy who was also grown up, who had gone away into the wilderness and now shows up on the scene with this prophetic message. Now we're in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. And in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So John the Baptist here fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy that we read before of being the voice, but also Malachi's prophecy of being the first voice in a long, long time to turn the hearts of the people back to God. And he's announcing that the day of the Lord is coming, except in Matthew's language, he puts it this way, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if the connection wasn't made, like going back to Isaiah 40, this moment, the sign, the time where everything that has been dry and silent, like a wasteland, was about to be made new. So pave the road, make the way, begin the highway for God to do a new thing. In a culture and a land that is different than them, the people of God, different beliefs than them, different philosophies of life than them, the time has come for the people of God to repent, to turn from the world, from themselves to God himself. Now, John, he had a particular fit, okay? He went down to the Columbia store in verse 4. He wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. If you are looking for a Halloween outfit, it is coming up. Here you go. That's a famous one. Now, this was actually interesting. It wasn't just unique to John. This was a little bit common, but more for the poverty of people, right? This was kind of something they would find. It'd be like uh, something off an animal to put on, and then honey and locusts were natural things you could find in the area there. 
So it's kind of cool to think of the son of the priest has gone away and then he came back, not at, kind of like Jesus, not as this like white horse riding in with a sword, whatever. He comes back as a very, more, looking more like the common folk, looking more like the poor. But thematically, the point of Matthew saying this is to put him together even more with the famous Old Testament figure of Elijah, as Malachi said he would be. When Elijah, this I'll go real briefly, comes onto the scene, this is how he's described. This is 2 Kings 1.8. It says, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. There was like a famous idea that Elijah would kind of, there'd be a resemblance. He would look like this. This was not lost on the people, especially since they've been waiting for a sign. They've been waiting for this Elijah figure. So verse 5 of Matthew 3, Then Jerusalem and all Judea, all the people in the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. They see this sign. They see these signs, and everyone runs to John. Why? Because they were all signs that the Lord was coming. And we'll get into some deeper details about actual baptism next week and why baptism was their response. But they felt the incredible urgency to respond to this news and these signs by confessing their sins and being baptized. And long had baptism been a way to symbolize the passing through the waters that ancient Israel did so long ago with the Red Sea and then right there uh, in the Jordan River into the promised land. So this was always kind of a symbol. Again, we'll talk more next week. But if the kingdom of heaven is at hand, if there is even a hint of this day of the Lord coming, then we better get right before the Lord. We wouldn't want him to come back and us not be ready. Now, church, let's take a, take a step out real fast. These people have waited over 400 years for a word. They hear a hint, a rumor that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and they rush to get baptized. They hurry to the Baptist to repent and confess their sins. This was 2,000 years ago. The question kind of needs to be asked, like how much time have we had to hear the kingdom of heaven is at hand? How often do we hear that phrase and we say like, yeah, I, I know I've heard that, but I'm just not ready to give it up yet. My own kingdom, my own life I've built, whatever it is. I know it's coming, but like, shouldn't there be like a sign or like surely there'll be some kind of warning <laughs> or something, right? And you can go to any one of these apocalyptic conferences and look at the signs of the end times. You can read the news right now and just look at the world and what's going on around us, right? But I think at the end of the day, I think we were just told about it. I think we were just told about it, right? Right? Yeah, thanks, Rachel. The signs are Jesus and his kingdom, right? Not a bunch of the end of the world kind of stuff. The focus is the Lord's kingdom, right? Repenting and trusting in Jesus and his kingdom is belief. It's getting yourself, it, it, getting yourself together just because the, it's the end of the world is more about fear than belief. So God's people are called to believe. So one of the questions for us this morning is what other signs are we waiting for, right? What do we think needs to happen before we urgently pursue Jesus with our whole lives? 
And I think there's a word of caution here to not get complacent in our own age. I want to go back to Matthew 3, because there were some who were complacent in John's age, who had reinterpreted the law of God to mean that God would bless those who were more righteous, that the kingdom of heaven should be ushered in by those in position and power. Back real quick to the 400 years of silence. There were religious groups that were formed during this time. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Real quick word on all those. Pharisees, keeper of the law, enforcers of the law among the Jewish people. Not all bad, but often can get caught up in their own piousness. The Sadducees, essentially religious politicians, governed the high priest and worked with Roman officials to gain more control of the people. And the Essenes, those were those who wanted to practice their Jewish faith outside of the whole temple system and kind of away from these two other groups. So they were kind of like ancient monks. They would go off in isolation and practice there. So in John's day in Judea, the practice of faith has been programmed to be what the Pharisees and the Sadducees say it is. This has often been turned into monetizing the temple sacrifices, making unrealistic qualifications for anyone to be clean, making up interpretations to laws that were more self-seeking than fair. And John sees right through this. So they show up on the scene. This is verse 7, and it's brutal. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? This phrase, brood of vipers, is long used Old Testament phrase. You can read it in Prophets Amos and Isaiah. It's related repeater, or repeated by Jesus himself a few times. The phrase is brutal. Instead of children of God, he's calling them children of the serpent. From Genesis 3, snakes have long resembled the serpent in the garden as the adversary of God. Instead of saying, hey, you guys are the top dogs and we should be like you, saying you actually, the way you are is against what God has for his people. John, the son of the priest, first prophet in over 400 years, calls out the most powerful religious leaders in all of Judea for being corrupt, wicked, and only seeking their own gain in their actions. But John is not totally against them here. He encourages them. Verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. One of the chief beliefs of the religious leaders was that they were the true purebred descendants of Abraham. Therefore, God's promise of blessing is theirs by birthright. But John is saying it's not just a given that because of your heritage, you can do whatever you want and it'll be blessed by God. That's turning God into their puppet to use his power at their will. And John reminds them, God could raise up children from these rocks and probably better children at that if he wanted to because it's about repentance. It's about the turning of the heart away from self and towards God. Now, quick word on baptism. Again, we'll talk about it again next week. But if you were raised in a tradition where baptism was kind of made mystical or it was an act of baptism that saved you or cleansed you, note here that John did so much baptizing, it literally became synonymous with his name. He's not encouraging them to be baptized. Right? In fact, he's calling them out for, want, for coming to him, wanting to be baptized, but not actually repentant. 
Okay, the prerequisite for baptism is confession of sin and repentance, shown in then the outward expression of baptism, which, spoiler alert, is super ironic because what they thought they could do based on their own self-righteousness versus what Jesus can actually do based on who he is is a teaser for next week. But John continues to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 10, he says, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Later on his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus expands this thought and he teaches this. This is Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So John is calling out the faith leaders of the faith right here. Their fruit has been recognized not as righteousness, but as self-seeking religiosity, which has never ended well for the leader of God's people. And John continues to warn them. Look, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Like John is putting the situation into perspective. He says, hey, look, I'm here not to fully judge you because that one is coming. I'm here as the warning and the chance to get right, to repent, because one is coming and coming soon who I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. That one is bringing the Holy Spirit and fire. And those are the means by which he will root out who is for him and who is against him. He's kind of asking them, are you nervous enough yet? You of all people know who's coming and what's coming. Do you really think you can deceive God and the Holy Spirit? spirit. Verse 12, he continues, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The idea here is the winnowing fork would throw the wheat into the air and pieces that were good for harvest of substance would fall to the ground first, but the parts of no substance the chaff would float worthlessly in the air until it was swept up and thrown into a nearby fire. The chaff can't do anything about it. There's just nothing to it. Yes, it was in with the wheat, but once separated, there was no substance. And this fire is unquenchable. It will not stop until there's nothing left to burn that needs to be burned. So John is blatantly calling out hypocrisy, false religion, like the prophets of old who stood among God's people, some even among kings of Israel in their own courts. And like them, he's saying once again to turn from your wicked ways because God is here. God in the flesh is about to walk right up to you and you will not be able to hide your face from him. It's intense, right? You guys feeling okay? <laughs> it's hot in here. Again, like we talked about last week, Jesus coming into the world, being on the scene is a threat to any sense of earthly power and self-seeking righteousness. Right, John, as the prophet, is setting the tone. He's speaking the truth, and the hearer has to deal with their own sense of urgency and need for repentance before the Lord. 
in terms of paving the way for Jesus, making this highway of God, John is saying it's all about confession of sin and repentance. It's not dress yourself up, get out the fine china because Jesus is in town, right? It's, be, it's repent because God is looking for the hearts that are for him, not the resumes, not the chaff that looks good, but once separated has no substance. And in all that prehistory that we went through, the religious leaders influenced by the world had forgotten much of the point of following God. The point of all that stuff, the religion, the practices God had for his people through his word, the law, they were all meant to create a new heart oriented towards God and his ways, not more towards themselves. But when so much time had passed, doubt creeps in. It was easy for leaders in John's day and Jesus' day to become complacent and forget what the urgency was in the first place. And church, my suspicion, and I know this because it stems from my own brokenness, is that many of us struggle with the same thing. A tad bit complacency because it's been 2,000 years of waiting, right? What was once an urgent, the Lord is here, is now, well, like that was a long time ago. What does that look like today? Maybe we're relying on more of a resume. Whatever stage of life we're in, we may be banking on something that happened earlier in our life or in our past or a great experience we had at a camp or a teaching or a church or something. Some great teaching we did. That's the basis for our righteousness that we're going to hand Christ. The question that John poses to me and to you right now is our hearts full of repentance and confession of sin or full of self-righteousness and complacency? If more of the latter, we may be able to deceive each other or our spouses or our mother-in-laws, right? But when we encounter Jesus, he knows us by our fruit. He knows what is in our hearts, and that's conviction, and it should be convicting. But here's also the encouragement. Jesus brings judgment on sin, false followers and wicked, yes, but not just for condemnation's sake. The judgment is there because there is the chance for salvation. Most people know in the Gospel of John, the John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But here, John continues, and we need to hear this. For God, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The gospel writer John says, whoever does what is true comes to the light. The prophet baptizer John says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Guys, it's intense, but the question for all of us as a community this morning, is what other signs are we waiting for? What other word or thing does Jesus or the ones who come before him have to do or say to convince us that this isn't just a fairy tale? What more warning do we need before we turn to him? 
The conviction this morning is that our urgency to come to Jesus may be lacking. It's possible. We run the risk of being complacent followers and at the end of the day may be more like chaff than substance. But the encouragement is that we have today. Right? It's that it's a new day. Today we have breath. Today we have life. Today we have the opportunity for life at its fullest. Today is the day for repentance. Today, God's mercies are new and fresh and abundant. We have heard the word of the Lord. Will we respond to it? Will we cling to it like a dying man, holding on to just one more day to make things right? See, the people in John the Baptist's day were so hungry and ready for the kingdom of God because they knew something wasn't right around them. They might not have had all the right theology or had all their ducks in a row, but they knew Rome wasn't the answer. They knew religion wasn't the answer. They knew God was the answer. And before they had even met Jesus, or, he's, or before he's even publicly introduced himself, they rushed to be a part of God's redemption process. Us today, church, as a community, we are without excuse. We know Jesus. We know the whole story. But are we hungry for the kingdom of heaven to come? for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Hub City, our challenge today is can we respond with urgency that propels our worship beyond just this moment, but into our very lives? The word has been spoken. It's an intense message from John, and that's why we're getting it. We're trying to feel that intensity there. But people flocked to John, just hearing a hint that the day has come. The day has come. Jesus is alive. Jesus is real. And there's an urgency we can have to say, today it ends. Today I'm giving my life. I'm stepping off the throne. His kingdom here on earth means your kingdom cannot stand. We have to give up. We have to repent and surrender to Jesus. But we can respond in joy, right? It's not just fear. It's not just, it's the end of the world. Everyone run for your lives, right? It's a joy. There's, Jesus is calling you into something. Life from death to life. And there's beauty in that.